I'm excited to tell you about our presenting sponsor, Hunt Club, the leading tech-enabled executive search firm. For Rick and me at Sater Grove, one of our obsessions is identifying and cultivating talent. Selfishly, it's one of the reasons we teach Art of Investing. The class allows us to get an unfair early glimpse at some of the best talent out there. But we all know the talent universe is vast and competitive, so beyond simply relying on our own networks, we've partnered with Hunt Club to assist us and our portfolio companies with all things search. Through its proprietary software and approach, Hunt Club is able to harness the networks of literally thousands of leading professionals to make warm introductions and personal referrals during a search. In our minds, gone are the days of relying on only one recruiter's Rolodex or on simply who's top of mind that week. By leveraging Hunt Club's network and technology, we've been able to unlock much more powerful connections, and we've been able to consistently find the right people for the right roles. So if you're looking to truly harness the power of networks with the ideal solution for all of your talent needs, visit huntclub.com AOI to learn more and get connected with our good friends over at Hunt Club. Hello and welcome to The Art of Investing, the pod class devoted to helping you more fully experience the joys of compounding in all its forms. I'm Paul Buser. And I'm Rick Berman. We are your hosts. In each session, our teachers will be some of the world's most compelling people from across the vast range of human achievement. Take your seats. Class is in session. This show is brought to you by Pine Grove Studios in collaboration with Colossus. The hosts of the show, Rick Berman and Paul Buser, are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Holdings and co-CEOs of Sata Grove Management Company. All opinions expressed by any of Rick, Paul, or their podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of either Sata Grove Holdings or Sata Grove Management Company. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Sata Grove Holdings or clients of Sata Grove Management Company may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Our teacher today is Brad Gerstner, founder of Altimeter Capital. And out of the gates, I want to say that this was a really fun class for us. Brad's just an exceptional investor and a gifted teacher as well. He has a unique ability to distill complex ideas into clear, qualitative insights. He also just has an infectious energy and optimism. And as you'll soon hear, a bold dream to unlock the joys of compounding in order to fight poverty and strengthen our nation. In this session, Brad will share lessons learned across the full arc of his fascinating career that has spanned everything from RV manufacturing to politics to founding and operating several technology companies, and of course, to building Altimeter into one of the preeminent technology investors across all stages, public and private. Through colorful stories, Brad weaves together a beautiful tapestry of some of the people, companies, and themes that have helped shape the technology landscape of the last 25 years. He also delivers us a masterclass on investing in supercycles, with plenty of insights into the past, present, and future of AI. We also discuss Invest America, a bipartisan grassroots movement led by Brad to make every child in the U.S. a saver and investor beginning the day they are born. This is such an exciting and potentially revolutionary idea, and we're delighted to bring this class to you in collaboration with Notre Dame professor Jim Sullivan, co-founder of the Lab for Economic Opportunity and inaugural chair of the Notre Dame Poverty Initiative. This was one of the most enjoyable classes of my teaching career, full of advice that all of us can benefit from. With that, I hope you enjoy our class with the wonderful Brad Gerstner. Come on. Woo! Listen, Brad, it's awesome to have you back in Art of Investing. And I can't think of a more appropriate guest. And Paul and I were just reflecting. It's been 
I think just over a year since you came into class with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And it was exactly the same week as you were prodding Mark Zuckerberg along to get fit and all of Silicon Valley, really. And at the same time, just shortly after our class together, you were prodding us and encouraging us to think about how we could democratize the art of investing and how to open it up to create more opportunity for more people. So here we are. And for anybody listening, I know my mom has become a regular listener. I don't know how many more people are tuning in. If you like what's happening, you have you really have Brad and Patrick to thank. And if you don't like it, they're to blame as well. But we're talking about a guy who, when he first started his investment firm, Altimeter, and we're going to talk a lot about, I think, the formation of your firm, building culture. We're talking about a guy who literally on the back of the original business cards of Altimeter had the compound interest table. This is the man that we want to speak with about the joys of compounding. And we're going to get into a whole range of topics that certainly include investing, but also things that could have a tremendous impact for the future of our country. Brad, I want to just start. I think it's important to get some of the foundation established with you just as an individual. And I think oftentimes investing is perceived as a very narrow profession that is not necessarily one with a lot of depth. We have a counter hypothesis that investing can be a really exciting vocation. And that's mainly because it can be a tremendous outlet for service and for self-expression. And I think you really embody that. I think anybody who knows about Altimeter really understands that it is a manifestation of who you are in a variety of respects. And so maybe we'll come back to that theme. But I thought it'd be appropriate just to start with going back to your early life. What's most important to understand about your formation that's led to you being the person and the investor that you are today? Rick, Paul, great to be back. Great to be back at Notre Dame. I see Patrick all bundled up with a tree behind him, which is totally appropriate. And while you gave me credit, the truth of the matter is Patrick was one who years ago really helped open my eyes along with some others to the power of podcasts to democratize information. And the truth is I grew up just down the road there in Notre Dame in a little town called Syracuse, Indiana on Lake Wawasee. Shout out to my mom and sister and nieces and nephews who they will be listeners after today, but certainly our locals are at every tailgate. But I didn't have access to information. Growing up in a rural high school, Wawasee High School and Syracuse Elementary, which did me right. But it was a really interesting time. And just picture this setting. So 1979, 1980, I'm in fifth grade. It's a tough time in America. We had an oil embargo in the Middle East. We had hostages in Iran. The Japanese were devastating our auto industry. This is where the phrase Rust Belt came from. This part of the world that Notre Dame is in was in the Rust Belt. Why was it the Rust Belt? Because we made cars, we made auto parts, we made the machinery that made America work. But America wasn't really working in 1978-79. Inflation was double digits. Interest rates were approaching 15%. And my dad was first-generation college. We grew up in a very close family. I have three siblings. And there's a lot of love. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of debate in this family. My grandfather was a real student. His bookshelf had books on philosophy and biology and biochemistry. And he just taught himself. He couldn't afford to go to college. But that's the environment you grew up in. You grew up in 
challenging each other. I was the youngest of four. My oldest brother is 14 years older than me. And so it was a very lively environment. My father took a job after graduating from Bradley University and working for Caterpillar in Peoria, where he met my mother. He took a job as a general manager in an auto parts manufacturer in Syracuse, Indiana. And he did that because he wanted to provide a better life for his kids. And he thought, this is a nice place to raise a family. But as was happening at that point in time, this small auto parts manufacturer wasn't going to make it. And so a larger buyer came along, a company called Dana, and he was working a company called Weatherhead. And they went to buy the company. And my dad, as plant general manager, had to get all the men, and at that time, there weren't women working on the factory floor, had to get all the men to go along with the deal that they wouldn't unionize, they wouldn't strike, et cetera. He negotiated, he said, okay, I'll do this so long as you don't fire any of them. This small town, my word is my bond. And if I bring them along, like you just have to have a standstill for at least a year. They said, that's what they'll do. They buy the company and within six months, they announced they're gonna do a major layoff of the men in this town, which for my dad, that was just, he just couldn't live with himself, right? And so he said, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to leave and we're going to start a competitor. The name of the company that he started was UMAX, and they were going to enter the business of precision auto parts manufacturing, going up against these folks who he thought had violated their word. Now, my dad knew nothing about starting a company. There was no venture capital. He had no money. He had no capital. He went to the local banks. He borrowed money at super high interest rates, and he took down this huge factory in Goshen, Indiana, not 20 minutes from where you guys are sitting. And my early memories are riding around on a forklift with my brother and my dad, the men cheering, my grandfather on the floor fixing the machines because he couldn't afford to have the maintenance done on these machines. And just, again, I'm sure with the decades that have passed, I've put some patina of heroism on this, but that's really, I'm just trying to give you the feelings of that kid in the fall of 1979, I saw my dad as a real hero on top of the pile, urging the team on. My mom was working two jobs. She was delivering food to the company just to keep the spirits and morale high. At that point in time, if you're borrowing money from a bank, you have to mortgage your house. You're begging and borrowing from your friends. And if things go south, as they ended up going south for my father, right? You lose your dad's money. You lose your friend's money right? You lose the bank's money, you lose the house. It has traumatic impact on the family, on his health, on his marriage, etc. And so that was my coming up in elementary school, in middle school. It was a tough time in that part of the world. It was a tough time economically. There was a lot of loss of hope. It was a tough time for our family. And it's almost like a Shakespearean drama bit as I've reflected and tried to do my own right therapy about this, right? My life has really been a journey, even when I would enter middle school and high school, a journey to understand politically, why was the world so upside down? Economically, why was the world so upside down? Why wasn't my dad able to make it to understand business? And in many ways, like I just saw how poverty and like my grandfather used to say, we don't have money problems. We have lack of money problems. The trauma that that caused and to slay that dragon. So in some ways, it's about redemption. In some ways, it's about avenging the dream that he was never able to achieve. But I would say the two things that were always there. And when I'm raising now my two boys who are 15 and 12, I think a lot about 
on the one hand, there was love and security. I never felt insecure. I never felt there wasn't a lot of love. And on the other hand, there was real adversity. There were real challenges. I learned at a very early age that if I wanted to go to college, I was going to have to pay for it. And I didn't want to go in debt because I saw what debt had just done to my family. So that adversity created definitely a fire in the belly and a passion to understand, make better sense out of what had just happened. Are there attributes of each of your parents that show up profoundly in yourself today? How do you think about some of their tangible impacts on who you are? As I think about two things in that, that we'll, I'm sure, touch on today, if I try to deconstruct the components of me as an investor, some of the things that have led to success, number one, there was a lot of debate and discussion in our families. In many respects, we were analyzing. We were analysts. We were trying to make sense out of things. There were discussions about politics, about science, about business. These were around the dinner table or when my grandfather would drive me to Saturday morning wrestling matches with my brother. It would be sitting in the front seat for three hours as we drove to Indianapolis, Indiana, and we would talk and debate. There was no phone that I was looking at. There was no TikTok. I was either looking out of the window or having a conversation. And those really set me up for, I think, life of an analyst. And on the other hand, there was a bias to action. There was a bias to action. My mother optimistically forged ahead. She didn't want to sit around and wallow and think about how the world was going to magically change for her. She was like, we have to change it. We have to make this house the best it can be. We have to make this situation the best it can be. We have to go get another job and forge ahead. I think those two things, the life of the analyst, but also the life of the operator, the bias to action, really play out time and again in my formulation as an investor. I love that. There's a thousand ideas on where I think we could take those two threads, but I'm going to try to hold off a little more time on the young Brad. You, like any good Hoosier, you stayed in state for college. You went to Wabash, which led to some really cool opportunities, and then law school at IU. Just curious, and eventually there's some little school called Harvard, whatever. We can talk about that later. But curious just how your college experience and then law school influenced you over time. I hate to say it, but Notre Dame, even though it was 20 minutes down the road, its golden dome may as well have been 2,000 miles away. It was just totally out of reach for what I could afford. And again, there wasn't a sense that I could just borrow an unlimited amount of money and go to school. I really was concerned about debt because it had bankrupted effectively our family and I didn't want more debt. So I knew two things. Number one, my way out was through education. And I knew this from a very early age. And I would be very independent from an early age. I had an amazing start, gifted and talented teachers who looked after me and made me believe. So I was hell-bent on getting scholarships. I was very fortunate to get the Lilly Scholarship in Indiana, which paid for a four-year college to a school like Wabash, and also would pay for a year of studying abroad. And that was room and board. And I remember the feeling of exhilaration my mother had, right? Just to know that I was going to get a good college degree and I wasn't going to be in debt. And Wabash was great, a really excellent small school environment. I studied politics and economics. I was a bio minor. So I could really touch everything there. The year I spent at Oxford was really transformative for me 
because it allowed me to compare my skills, if you will. I play in the bigs for a year. It was my first time out of Indiana. And I studied politics, philosophy, and economics. Imagine the time that I was there in 1990-91. I literally was the kid in the movie dragging the oversized suitcase down the streets of London, first time out of the country, getting on the train out to Oxford. I couldn't have been more out of place. But I was there at this seminal time. The wall came down in Berlin, right? I was in the Oxford Debating Union. I was a debater for the debate between Norman Tebbit and Edward Heath, the former prime minister, about whether the United Kingdom should enter the single monetary union. This was pre-Euro. This was pre-Maastricht summit. It was just such a kinetic time to be there and to be able to travel around Europe with the excitement and the optimism that came with the end of the Cold War and all the possibilities that brought. And while I was there, I connected with my senator, then Dick Luger, and on my way back, stopped and worked with him, not only in his office, but he was the acting chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was denuclearizing the world with Sam Nunn. So I went from this one incredible experience to that. And so when I got back my senior year, I was ready to fly. I thought I would leave the state and go to law school, but I was lucky to get a full ride scholarship to Indiana University. And I thought to myself, I can't turn that down because now I can make it through law school too without any debt. And so tremendous gratitude for that and had an incredible experience at Indiana University School of Law. What I say to my kids too, because they often ask me about different schools, do I have to go to Harvard or Oxford, whatever. The top students at Syracuse Elementary, at Wawasee High School, at Wabash College, at Indiana University, the top five students were as good as top five anywhere. Right. It's just the median that's different. Right. So you can get a great education at all these places. Super, super grateful. Thinking a lot about that. We'll get to Invest America later. But again, how do you take a kid on the outside? How do you bring them into the inside? How do you give them a taste of those things that I was fortunate enough to get a taste of? Brad, there's a lot that happened between the debates at Oxford, between your time in Bloomington and then HBS. But if you look at where you are now, Altimeter Capital, It's quite a different style firm. It's one of the leading investment firms out there, but it has a lot of unique attributes. This is a theme we've been hitting on a lot this semester with folks like Honam of Altos and his partners and the way they do things a bit differently. David Senra, the human tornado, sitting in a room by himself reading biographies and now emerging with this catalog of incredible insights that are reaching out to the world. Can you just talk about some of the key influences that led you to design Altimeter? the way you have. I know we've talked about it's public and private investing. It's tech focused, but also influenced by a lot of value investors. And you have a strangely unusual duration in terms of your mindset and structure. Can you hit upon some of those key attributes and what led you to design it the way you did? Yeah. So if you're going to do something for a lifetime, you have to design it in a way that brings you joy, that is the source of your passion, right? Because everything is super competitive. So I find that you can only sustain the highest level championship caliber effort with you and your team if you get up every morning and truly love what you're doing. So for me, as those years unfolded, it was very clear that my passion was technology. Studying the world that was evolving in front of us and moving the economy forward. It was both what I love to tinker with, but it's also I found the most challenging and the most interesting. I had a belief early on 
the technology not only was the thing that drove modern capitalism forward for the last hundred years, whether through the Industrial Revolution, but that would drive us forward at an accelerating rate. And sure, it has. Technology has gone from 5% of the global economy to 17% of the global economy en route to being 40% of the global economy. One was just following that passion. Number two was, in my early career, I had encountered some incredible public market investors. I had studied during high school, Buffett, read all of his letters, plotted stocks, thought a lot about public markets. And so when I learned enough about the different investment management businesses, I found it perplexing why they were all stage-driven. You own this company, but the second it goes public, you have to be out of it, even though it may be very early in its journey. So this idea of being able to be a student of technology to make investments, to hold them at different stages, right, across their life cycle made a lot of sense to me. It wasn't called crossover at the time, Paul. Back in the day, nobody asked Warren Buffett, hey, why do you own private companies and public companies? He would just tell you, I own great companies at fair prices. And for me, that was really the sensibility that I wanted to bring to technology and to Altimeter. It wasn't popular at the time because most of the people who give you money, LPs, certainly institutional LPs, at the time, they want to put you in specialist buckets. You're an early stage venture capitalist. You're a mid-stage venture capitalist. You're a late stage growth investor. You're an emerging hedge fund. You're an established hedge fund. You manage money this way. It took me a while to break through to institutional LPs. I looked at folks like Klarman, folks like Paul Reeder, folks like Warren Buffett or Ted Weschler, and the attribute that stood out to me is they were money makers, right? They had a deep appreciation for business models, competitive moats, leadership margins, what the attributes were of a great business. And so that's what I wanted to build. And I just focused on that. And Paul Reeder said to me early on, he said, Brad, deliver the returns and you'll get the investors you deserve. And he was right. I think the learning I want to just underscore here for all of us is that so often initially differentiation is unpopular. And Brad, I think you started Altimeter with just a couple million dollars and very similar story that we heard from Ho a few weeks ago in the Altos formation. If you're looking at the market to determine, and I think far too many folks fall prey to this, if you're looking for some kind of product market fit rather than your own personal fit, your own personal manifestation of the firm that you need to build, it's in your heart and soul and mind, you may find success in terms of capital raising early on, et cetera. But if you're trying to build something of substance for the long term, you're just so much better off attempting to identify that one firm that only you can build, that one encapsulation of an investment philosophy, a set of talents, a structure, an organizational design, all these attributes that fit you and allow that to be your North Star as opposed to what's hot right now and what are people willing to fund today? I think that's really well said. Listen, there are a lot of people who came out of the gates. They just said, I'm going to give the market what it wants. I'm going to check all the boxes. They raised a lot more than me, a lot faster than Altimeter has. But ultimately, if you're successful in this business, another thing that my old mentor, Paul Reeder, and we ought to get to him, said to me, listen, if you're in this business for a long time, then you will have been very successful and you will be much more focused on what made you happy than how much money you made, okay? And he was right. Yesterday, we celebrated our 15th anniversary at Altimeter. I've been doing this now for over 20 years, and I'm doing it today for 
the love and the passion of the game. I'm doing it today for the impact that we can have, but I'm able to do it today with the level of love for the sport that I've always had because we did it the way we wanted to do it. And I look around me at many of my peers who don't love the style of investing they forced themselves into. They created their own prison, their own box by setting expectations that allowed them to get off to a fast start in terms of fundraising, but ultimately was unsatisfying because they weren't doing what they really loved. They were actually managing to formulas. They were managing to stage. They were doing things that LPs wanted them to do rather than doing things that they believed in their heart would lead to a good investment outcome. Brad, we do have to touch upon Paul Reeder and David and Joel that general catalyst and that period, that decade before Altimeter was started, because I think the way that you're describing some of the unique attributes of Altimeter and your approach really were born out of those influences and the concentration you had on one industry and at times just a couple of companies in travel. Unpack some of those stories so that for our students, they can see if you take that path that maybe it was a little less traveled, or at times you felt like you were in the wilderness and different than most venture capitalists or private equity folks or hedge fund investors that then gave you a set of experiences that were instrumental in founding Altimeter. I'll take the liberty of talking about a few people, maybe, Paul, that I think really shaped how I thought. So I talked early that those early experiences around thinking like an analyst, two people just down the road from Notre Dame, Pete Legal and Omer Krupp. Pete Legal is the founder of Forest River. Omer Krupp is the founder of Supreme Industries. Pete Legal, I became his chief of staff my junior and senior year in high school. He was starting a small RV company called Forest River. He had some bad experiences with private equity folks in a prior RV company called Cobra. And he just said, I want you to be at my side. You're going to help me solve problems. I saw immediately that Pete was a very unique person. And I worked really hard so that in Pete's eyes, I was also unique and could bring him value. I collected Pete and Pete collected me, right? I like to think of his Forest River. He put me in charge of the purchasing for the Sierra Travel Line my junior year in high school, okay? So just to put this in perspective, this company went on to become the largest RV manufacturer in the world. He sold the business to Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett talks about him extensively in his letters. And Pete, just saw the factory line that was shutting down because they weren't getting the parts in on time. And he knew that I had been working with the CFO using this new tool called a spreadsheet. And he said, take your fancy stuff out there. I want you to sit in the booth overlooking the factory floor. And he's never be short, never be short a product. You get every supplier's and think about it. And an RV has hundreds of parts that go into it from refrigerators to screws that have to be there at the moment the product is moving down the assembly line. So many Pete stories. I would say, Pete, I think we're spending too much on waste, okay? I've been going through our bills. I think we can reduce our waste costs. You know what he had me do? Oriented to action. He said, great, here's a tape measure. I want you to crawl into every dumpster we have. I want you to measure the inside of the dumpsters, and we're gonna do our own analysis on cubic yards of waste that we're creating, and we're going to compare it to the bills we're getting. These were the type of things that I learned from Pete, just an orientation to action. Same with Omer Krupp. In that part of the world, now, what Supreme Industries did is they became the largest builder of truck conversions in the world. So think about FedEx trucks, right? It comes with a chassis, they build the box on the back. And 
again, neither Pete nor Omer spent much time studying or analyzing, but they would hear what you had to say, and then they would say, go try it. Their way of analyzing was just A-B testing in real life. Go build it. Go build this. Climb into that. So that was very formative with me in understanding inside out how businesses get built, how competitive moats get built. They didn't know they were using Michael Porter's five forces, but they were. They just had figured out through trial and error. I go to Harvard Business School, as you mentioned. I'm there at this very kinetic time, 1995. Mark Andreessen's on the cover, 96, on the cover of Time Magazine for the Netscape browser. I come to Silicon Valley for the first time, buy a one-way ticket from Indianapolis, come out here, see what this place is all about. So I go back to business school and I'm hell-bent to get to Silicon Valley. In fact, nobody's really going to class in 1999 because the internet's exploding. And so we're all doing case studies on technology companies, which was just an excuse to be outside the classroom and living in Silicon Valley or whatnot. So I interviewed with a couple hot startups in Silicon Valley that were very small. I wanted something that still had a ping pong table, the proverbial garage. I was talking to two companies. One was called Tell Me, which was kind of an AI voice command business that Microsoft ultimately bought. And the other one was a little search engine called Google that was trying to compete up against AltaVista and Lycos and Yahoo. But My classmate who became my wife said, hey, we're staying in Boston. And so I was also baking something in Boston. There are two guys, Joel Cutler and David Fialco, that were talking to a lot of my classmates about seeding their new ideas. So Boston at the time had a very vibrant venture capital scene. Greylock, Matrix, Charles River, Highland, go through the list. And, And so these guys wanted to break in on venture capital. They had sold a little travel business. They had a few bucks. They were both lawyers. They had grown up in Boston. They said, we want you to come work with us. We need to find a launch deal because if we have a launch deal with a really popular venture capital firm, on the back of that, we can go raise a fund. And at the time, I think we're just, they were running their firm as FC Capital, Fialco Cutler Capital. But I helped them put together a launch deal. I'm super grateful to them. They're forces of nature. Joel, very cerebral, analytical. David, very much experiential operator, just leading through experimentation, bias to action. So again, this duality that I saw in that partnership, I jumped in. I helped him put that deal together with SoftBank. I became the co-CEO of that business. It was one of the few things that was working. So online travel was really exploding. And we made the booking engines that powered Expedia and Travelocity and Orbitz and Yahoo. Before they built brands, we built, think of it as the Shopify, really inside their businesses. So within a period of two years, we built a business with over a billion in gross bookings, making over $20 million of EBITDA. The world started melting down. By the fall of 2000, Expedia told us they wanted to buy the business. This is a good story. So Rich Barton, founder of Expedia, this young, visionary, brilliant guy out of Microsoft, he had founded Expedia within Microsoft. We were providing this technology and Rich and I just hit it off from early on. And he was good buddies with a guy named Bill Gurley, who I also got to know at that point in time. And we just had this fundamental belief that organizing the world's information, both products as well as knowledge, would be the most valuable place in the internet. Right. And in this case, we were organizing the world's travel information. And so he said, We're going to buy your company. Come work with us. 
Shortly thereafter, we have a conversation with Barry Diller. Now, Barry Diller, absolutely brilliant, legend. He had success in something called the Home Shopping Network. But what he learned in the Home Shopping Network is this idea of commerce through a screen. And so when he saw the internet, he said, oh yeah, that's just like the TV. That's just like Home Shopping Network. So he wanted to gobble up all of these verticals within the internet. Think Ticketmaster. He bought 1-800-HOTELS that would become Hotels.com. Because of the success there, Saul Travel is his next big investment area. So we meet Diller. Diller said, hey, I want to buy your company. I said, we can't do that. We're already in negotiations to sell to a big company. He goes, I'll be right back. Comes back in. And he said, tell them I'll buy them too. And sure enough, six months later, in Beverly Hills, California, May of 2001, Rich Barton and I are in the back of a limousine, leaving our announcement on the way to Barry Diller's house, where he's throwing a party to celebrate the acquisition of these two companies. I look at Rich and I said, strange world. How did we get here? When that was the launch deal for David and Joel, and on the backs of that, and just on the backs of their sheer brilliance, hustle, intellect, they went on to build what has become one of the leading venture capital firms, not only in Boston, but in Silicon Valley, now run by Hamatanasia, along with David and Joel, who's a dear friend. Those experiences, what did I learn in that experience, Paul and Rick, the other investors that we brought into that early online travel company, Seth Klarman, Paul Reeder. So Paul was on the board of that early online travel company. Fialco was on the board. You can imagine how chaotic that boardroom was with Fialco on the board. Fialco was always driving us bigger, harder, faster. Paul was very cerebral, very analytical. And so after we sold our share in the business, I decided to leave that company. I thought I would go back to General Catalyst. Paul Reeder, because he and I had started working together on some public ideas, he said, hey, you ought to come work with me. I think you'd be good in this hedge fund business. But I got a call from a classmate, a friend, Basil Samaya, who now runs Lightspeed, another venture capital firm. He said, hey, I have another startup idea. Let's build smarter semantic search for local. Think of Yelp before Yelp in many ways. And we called it open list. We bootstrapped it. We turned down venture capital term sheets. And long story short, over a couple of years, we ended up selling that to a public company in Seattle called Marchex. My big lesson from OpenList was there the outcome was much smaller than that first online travel company, but I owned half of it. And so it had a much better economic impact for me. So you don't always have to take venture capital. So that was that second business. And then I started a third business. By this time, I was convinced I have these ideas. I need to get them out of my head. I loved this third business. It was called Room 77. Our idea was to digitize the world's blueprints, starting with hotels, and allow you to create virtual views out of any building. And so the idea was you can virtually put yourself in a room. So I recruited one of the co-founders of Google Earth, a guy named Calvin Yang. And we were able to plot the latitude, longitude, and altitude of every room programmatically. And then hack Google Earth, spin it around, and you could look from any point on the Earth, you could look out instead of looking in. Really cool technology, hired a team of 30 in Mountain View. Most of the engineers came out of Google. We were right next door to Google. We were doing really cool stuff. Google said, we want that back. They bought the company and that became Google Hotel Finder, which is now a $10 billion plus product for Google. And then I went 2005, I called up Paul and I said, hey, Paul, you thought I'd be good in this business. I've thought a lot about it and I do want to get back to investing. I don't want to go back to traditional venture capital. I don't want to just do public stock trading. I'll come and work for you, but here's what I want to do. You don't have a technology practice. I'll build a technology practice. I'll do your public technology. 
I'll do your venture technology. You don't even have to pay me, but you do have to have lunch with me every day. And Paul was bewildered. And he said, deal, just come work for me and we'll figure it out. And I joined him and needless to say, he paid me. It was such a fun time. I ran a couple hundred million dollars in a public sleeve and just got to own things like Google and Priceline. And again, back to this theme, the super cycle, just own search, own product search, knowledge search. And then on the venture side, being able to lead the Series B and Zillow, which Rich Parton and Bill Gurley, back to that story, organizing the world's information, this time in the category of real estate, ITA software, which was another search business that we sold to Google, Faircast, an early AI search business that we sold to Microsoft. So Paul gave me the chance to really A-B test the firm that I wanted to build to learn from an absolute legend of the public market business, which then set me up well to launch Altimeter a few years later. Just a remarkable tale of compounding relationships. And if you don't mind, there's a handful of other folks that I'd love to ask you about. First of all, the whole early experience with Barry, was that also where you met Dara? It's funny, the family tree. Dara was the head of M&A for Barry Dillard. Barry was running a company at the time called USA Networks. It was one of the hottest companies in the internet. And he had recruited a young analyst out of Allen and Company named Dara Kashashahi. And Dara would become his head of M&A, his CFO, and eventually go on to be CEO of Expedia and, of course, now the CEO of Uber. What's it like now being an investor in Uber and investing behind and alongside somebody who you've known pretty intimately for 20 plus years? In what ways is it different than, say, backing other firms where you just don't have that kind of history? One of the things, a point you make about the compounding value of relationships is something I want to hit on here for a second. The most valuable thing of those 20-year-old relationships are these are my friends. This is life. The compounding value of fun, the compounding value of learning, the compounding value of an interesting life lived on all sorts of topics with these folks. That is by far the best return I could ever ask for. And we've also done a lot of business together. I want to make sure the order is very clear. The 90% benefit for me in having these relationships for 20 years. I still talk to Bill Gurley probably every day, but certainly every week. We debate everything under the sun from macro to politics to individual companies to venture to public markets. It is so fun, so interesting, and so valuable. And those start off as these small relationships. So find the people early on, the people who stand out invest in them. I tell my kids, part of being a friend is investing in that relationship and that friendship. And so what I would say is Dara, Rich, Bill, we've all gone on to do a lot of things together. Some have worked, some have not worked, but we bring our energy, our passion, the same intellect to all of those things. With respect to Dara, I think over time, one of the things that I deeply appreciated about Warren Buffett, is he always thought of himself as an owner, right? He was never a passive bystander in businesses, although he would be the first to tell you that 95% of the time, he has nothing useful to say. So he's also not the person who's always talking. But when there is a critical strategic moment in the life of business, when the shit hits the fan at Solomon Brothers, right? When You have an event like 2008 and somebody needs to be refinanced like Goldman Sachs. He picks up the phone and he talks. And so that's 
the role that I modeled it after. So with respect to Dara, at critical moments in time, at Expedia, at Uber, we've been a shareholder, an owner, and I think we've earned the respect that you started this conversation mentioning the open letter to Mark Zuckerberg. Because we don't talk all the time, when we do talk, people know it's going to be based on research. It's going to be thoughtful. We're going to bring something to the table. That's what it's like working with Dara today. He's running an incredible business. He took it from losing $7 billion with a culture that was totally broken, a boardroom in absolute disarray, and he turned it around. The boardroom is now well-functioning, the culture is fixed, and the company is expected to make $6 billion next year. A $15 billion turnaround in five or six years in this incredible company. And frankly, we're still shareholders. And we think that's going to be a terrific compounder for years to come. I was in Omaha having dinner with Ted Weschler, one of our mutual friends. We were talking about Uber and he said, Uber's a technology company I can understand. And I said, why, Ted? And he said, because it's a verb, you Uber. We like (laughs) verbs in Omaha. We get consumer products that people love and that are irreplaceable. And as far as we're concerned, that's the attribute that makes Uber most interesting. You mentioned Ted. He's a special friend of this class in particular because despite not attending Notre Dame, Ted is one of the founding advisory board members of the Notre Dame Institute for Global Investing, which is where our class resides. And just curious, anything else around your friendship with Ted or what you've learned just building a relationship with him, whether it's investing related or otherwise? It's not surprising to me that Warren Buffett was not only great at picking great people. When he bought a company, he knew Pete Legal was special. He knew Forest River was special, but he could trust Pete Legal. And so the fact that he found his way to Todd Combs and Ted Weschler should come as no big surprise because he's been collecting some of the world's most talented people and great companies for a long time. Ted used to run a hedge fund based in Charlottesville. He ran it as a single person, single office, and an assistant. But he was a force. He was an analytical machine. He showed up prepared. He knew what he was doing. And we worked on an interesting deal with him where America West, we were helping to finance it coming out of bankruptcy. We merged it with US Air. It was really a deal by my then partners, Paul and Ed. But we got to know Ted at that time. And it's just been, again, another one of these magical relationships where one of my highlights over the course of the year is Paul Reeder and I fly out and have dinner with Ted. We try every quarter in Omaha, and we'll sit in the same booth, have the same meal for four or five hours and talk about all the issues we're talking about here. But here's the thing that always strikes me. The depth, his ability to telescope in and out. He could talk to you about China macro, but he will talk to you about the most esoteric thing in the 10Q of a company that's a small company. It blows my mind. You think to yourself, this guy must have an army of analysts. He must have technology coming out his ears to help him process all this information. And you're like, Ted, walk me through today. And he's like, started off reading a stack of papers. And Warren came down at 10 o'clock and we talked for 90 minutes. And then he left and I went back to reading. And then we got together and we had Wendy's or Dairy Queen or whatever for lunch. What's so remarkable? And we're going to talk a little bit about essentialism. What's so remarkable is that Ted and Todd are still managing Now, much, much more capital, tens of billions of dollars in capital. Ted still has that one-room office in Charlottesville, still has the same assistant. And the only difference is he flies to Omaha, I think, three or four days a week. I treasure him and his investment insights, his wisdom that only comes with doing this for a long time. 
they built an incredible next generation over at Berkshire. I'm glad you mentioned essentialism. Definitely going to come back to that. I have one more for you. And Paul's making me ask you about him because he was actually Paul's commencement speaker back in oh, 2003 wow. at Notre Dame. I got President Bush 43 right uh, when he had become one. president. It was pretty good in 01. But we're talking about the legendary Hoosier Senator Dick Luger. I think you had worked for Dick yeah. early on. Yeah, I did. I mentioned on the way Dick had been a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So when I penned a letter to him from Oxford, I probably put it on some Oxford stationery or something to catch his attention. He noticed and invited me to come to Washington and work with him. Like I said, this was a different moment in time. You just have to think about this. The first 20 years of my life were really defined by, talked about some of the traumatic economic experiences, but I grew up a kid of the Cold War doing bomb shelter drills. It really makes me seem so damn old. And yet I look at this class, I still feel I could be in the class. That's really what it was. And so when the Cold War ended and I got to travel to Berlin just after the wall came down or I got to go to DC and work with Luger and Nunn on nuclear disarmament, it was a very different moment in time. It was a special moment when he would say, hey, do you want to join me for lunch in the Senate dining room? And you would go have lunch in the Senate dining room. And literally, it would be filled with all the senators, Democrats and Republicans, all sitting at the same tables, all having conversations with one another. And they couldn't wait to introduce me to whether it was Moynihan or none or whatever the case was. And I always remember, we always went for a seven-mile run every evening. He shuffled his way around the mall. He wore a Timex Ironman. And I thought to myself, if a Timex Ironman is good enough for Dick Luger, it's good enough for me, and I'd wear one for the next 40 years. And most importantly, he was a treasure for the state of Indiana. He was the mayor, went on to be our senator for a very long time. The state of politics today, let's just leave it at this. It could use a lot more Dick Lugers, right? And here we are. We find ourselves in what I think are ever-expanding incursions abroad. We've been basically at war for the last 20 years. And as a proxy or otherwise, we're spending money the United States doesn't have. The world is not becoming a safer place. I think that the only way through to the other side, just like the end of the Cold War, yes, peace through strength, but you also need diplomacy and statesmen and people who are trusting and willing to have conversations. He would go anywhere and have a conversation with anybody. And this idea that the world is all good or all bad, I just got back from Riyadh last week. You need to go stand in people's shoes. You need to look at them. You need to talk to them. You need to understand our own fallibility. You need to understand your own dominant perceptions that are not the same. And Dick Luger just had that in spades. And I'm inspired by him. I think it's important in life to have a passion, a pursuit that's bigger than just a calling to make more money. If you're calling and investing in this class or whatever, I understand when I'm sitting in that classroom, all I cared about was I got to get a million bucks in my bank account. It was an overriding dragon that I had to slay because of my childhood experience. But the seed I will plant and that he planted with me is if you're lucky enough to get there, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Use the platform to have impact, to leave the world a better place than you found it. And he worked every day to try to make that happen. We're going to talk about the impact you're continuing to make for the country here in a few minutes. We do have a number of budding philosophers in class. And it was almost three years ago that you were on Patrick's pod, Invest Like the Best. And there was a great discussion about the role that essentialism has played in your life. I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But before I do, I want to read from Greg McEwen's book, 
seminal book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, just to frame the discussion. He says, essentialism is not about how to get more things done. It's about how to get the right things done. It doesn't mean just doing less for the sake of less either. It is about making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at our highest point of contribution by doing only what is essential. The way of the essentialist means living by design, not by default. Instead of making choices reactively, the essentialist deliberately distinguishes the vital few from the trivial many, eliminates the non-essentials, and then removes obstacles so that the essential things have clear, smooth passage. In other words, essentialism is a disciplined, systematic approach for determining where our highest point of contribution lies, then making execution of those things almost effortless. Brad, maybe you could just talk a little bit about why this vein of philosophy has found its way so profoundly into your life and work. Maybe it's because I don't have as big a brain as Elon Musk, and I'm not able to process as much. But what always struck me about these influences in my life were, while they had a lot of ideas, they also had the singular passion and pursuit. And this notion, I came to essentialism not thinking of it as a business philosophy, but really as a life philosophy. And it pervades my life. And part of it was just instinctual. I don't like chaos and a lot of things in my house. So I'm a minimalist when it comes to architecture or furniture design. When we were designing products, early internet products, or we would look at pages, I very much fell into the Steve Jobs camp. Why can't you just asking the question, why do we have to have that button? Why do we have to have three steps to a booking? Why can't it just be a single step? And so this product design philosophy also was, I think, a bit instinctual. And so in life, pretty early on, it was that I was happier when I wasn't constantly chasing everything. And so I think you have to be true to yourself, but I would just encourage one, particularly in the age of TikTok, where the dopamine fires every 10 seconds for my kids when they get a like or they do a new post is that's the opposite in many ways of essentialism, right? When you fill yourself with so many competing ideas, it's hard to be exceptional at one. And one of my first days at Harvard Business School, we did a foundations class with a guy who wrote the book, History of Modern Capitalism. His name's Tom McCann. And he said to everybody there, he said, they're good news and bad news. The good news is that you're at Harvard Business School and you probably bought yourself an insurance policy. Life's going to be okay for you. He said, the bad news is that you're at Harvard Business School and you just bought yourself a life insurance policy. And so you'll probably never be really great. And he said, because the great ones, they risk everything. The great ones don't try to keep all their options open. The great ones don't want to go work at, and I'm not dinging them. If you think about the interviews at Harvard Business School, it's Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. And so he just said, challenge yourself. He said, in this life, commit to something and then just see, go deep. Bill Gates went deep. Elon Musk went deep, right? Elon sells PayPal and he risks everything on building reusable rockets to get us to Mars and electric cars that nobody thought anybody would drive, right? He didn't diversify into 20 things, right? And so... To me, that was a real inspiration, seeing that. Paul asked a question. Sometimes I get laser-locked on a few companies. I can be very concentrated, go very deep. 
I think it's a huge myth that we perpetrated on the investing public. This idea that diversification is risk mitigation. Ask Ted Weschler, Warren Buffett, if they think that's true. They have 50% of their public book in Apple. Diversification, as we found in 2008, when every asset is correlated, did nothing to protect people to the downside, right? And I have a big belief that the best risk mitigation is investing in great companies that you really know and understand. And why would I choose to put money in my 20th best idea or my 30th best idea just to achieve some magical formula around diversification when I have asymmetric advantage on ideas one, two, three, four, and five? For me, the great ones I've been around went all in on something, whether it's Dick Luger on denuclearizing the world, whether it was Pete Legal on figuring out ways to squeeze costs out of building an RV, whether it was Paul Reeder and Ted Weschler on airlines. And so I wanted to bring that same mentality to investing. And so I remember when I joined Paul and I bought my first stock, which was Google in early 2005. And I said, how diverse do you want me to run this book? And he said, diversification is the enemy of returns. And I said, okay, that's good. It makes life really easy because I think Google and Booking are the two best businesses that I can invest in. So I'll just put it all in these two companies. And that creates a lot of free time to study and to build more advantage on those companies. And I over-exaggerate a little, but that's still what we bring. And if you think about what Altimeter is today and what many of those companies were and are, Altimeter, and I would argue Berkshire in many ways, certainly Park Capital, were research institutions that happened to invest. Okay, so remember what I talked about, this duality, the analyst and the operator. The analyst studies all the time. Somebody once asked Buffett, how could you have improved your returns? And he said, slept more and come into the office less. And what he was trying to indicate is that we have a propensity as investors to do too many things. The reality is you do your work, you find a great company, and you allow it to compound for a really long period of time. And what investors are insistent upon doing is they'll pick up a data point. It'll look bad on the quarter. So they'll sell this thing that they spent so much time developing conviction in. And sure, it may have a bad quarter. And then you may look back at the stock chart 10 years later, just like Priceline had a bad quarter, but was up 100x over 15 years. Who cares, right? The question is, do you have conviction in the long-term path of the company? And I think that that duality of being able to be a research institution where we think, we study a lot. Now we publish a lot. I encourage you to follow all of our analysts on Twitter or Substack or whatever, and you should all do the same thing, right? Pressure test your ideas in the court of public opinion. Get people to react to your ideas as part of the research process. But we try to do that, and then we act less. But when we act with authority, because we spent the time to develop the conviction. This class is brought to you by our friends at Sumus, the revolutionary health benefit solution that gives employees unheard of access to top medical specialists across the full range of medical specialties and employers a proven way to significantly lower their enterprise-level healthcare spend. It's a transformation of access made possible by Sumus's unique marketplace model that in as little as a day connects employees across the country with over 5,100 of the best specialists at the nation's top medical centers through an elegant, simple, medium agnostic platform, and a human relationship-based user experience. The quality of Sumus's solution is unrivaled. They are currently delivering 7 to 10 times higher employee engagement, a 9.4 out of 10 employee satisfaction rate, 
and all while driving meaningful and measurable healthcare cost savings for the companies they serve. Now, we are delighted Sumas customers, as are many companies in our ecosystem, all of which are having amazing results, both in better health outcomes and material cost savings. So if you're looking for a benefit that provides huge value to both your employees and your bottom line, visit sumusglobal.com. That's S-U-M-M-U-S global.com. Brad, I think this is the perfect moment to talk about a new project of yours that is out there on Twitter. If people are searching and now unpacking your experiences with your dad and with Senator Luger and others, it makes a lot more sense how this has come together. And this project is Invest America. It's this project that we want you to outline that will give savings accounts to all Americans and allow them to participate in capitalism. There's a lot more to it. I just think it's so interesting as we talk about compounding. And I think with Dara, you mentioned compounding relationships, compounding fun, compounding capital, that there's a chance to bring a lot more people into this compounding journey. Unpack this a bit for us. What is this project? Why are you going all in? Essentialism means you shouldn't dig on too many projects, but you really are about to do an enormous amount of work on this project. Again, maybe in some ways, Rick and Paul, this is the natural byproduct of the last 40 years of my life, right? A kid on the outside, I don't have anything. I don't own anything. I'm looking, how do I get to the other side? My grandfather, who I mentioned, he sacrificed everything during life, drove old cars, lived in an old house, never had a luxury. So the grandkids, there were four of us, were surprised when he died that he had saved $100,000 and he left us each 25,000 bucks. And I made that commitment that day. I said, this guy has sacrificed everything for this money. I'm going to compound this money. This is going to be my seed in life. And that's what I did. And I took my Series 763, started plotting stocks, started investing, and I would day trade that kernel in college, in law school, in business school, and was able to get through all that education debt-free with a corpus. And I know the feeling that I had when I went from being on the outside to being on the inside, to owning something. The problem in America is despite 529 plans, 401k plans, lots of talk about thrift savings, 70% of Americans do not participate in the magic and the joy of compounding. We have a much bigger problem. And here's the bigger problem. The age group 18 to 39 in this country, according to Pew, now believes socialism is a better way to organize our economic approach to governing than capitalism, right? Just in the last four years, according to Pew, Capitalism in the eyes of all people in the United States has fallen another 10% in terms of its approval rating and is about to go below 50% approval rating in the United States. Ray Dalio talks about the rise and fall of nations. When wealth gaps grow, when people feel like they're not part of the system, when they're on the outside looking in, you have populist movements that lead to the downfall of countries. To me, I think we have this brilliant opportunity to tie the magic of compounding, the magic of American enterprise, free market capitalism with everybody. And so the idea is very simple. We have 3.7 million children born in this country every year. Your birthright in this country is the Treasury Department should cause 3.7 million private investment accounts to be set up. They're called Invest America. It would look much like your money page on your Fidelity or your Schwab account. They would seed it with $1,000 from the federal government. So the cost of the federal government is 3.7 billion a year, less than one one hundredth of 1% of our national budget, right? So it is a tiny amount from the federal government. 
But what it does is it creates universal participation in a private account that then people can add to over the course of their life and it will naturally compound. And the most important thing is that when that child enters fifth or sixth grade and they want to talk about financial literacy or they want to talk about capitalism, rather than a kid saying, what does this have to do with me? My parents have never owned anything. I don't own anything. The teacher instead says, open up your Invest America account on your phone. You all have one. And they open it up and they see at the top their name and they see it has $10,000 in it. And they see the top five holdings in the S&P 500 that they hold. Apple, Tesla, United Healthcare. Their small slice in America that they now own, that they're compounding in. And so we have bipartisan support. It's a piece of legislation we hope to get introduced starting in the spring. As you might imagine, I have a lot of the world's best investors who are excited to support this. And for me, I'm trying in the mold of Dick Luger to build a really big tent, right? From the Clintons to the Cokes and everybody in between, because everybody can agree that the magic of this country is the upside that we create through American innovation, the upside that we create through American capitalism. That is a gift as well, right? The conditions to create American capitalism are put in place by the federal government, right? And so universal ownership, if you compound at the rate that the S&P 500 has compounded at for the last 50 years, so if you look at any 10-year period, it's basically 10%. So if you start with $1,000 and the family or a corporation contributes $750 a year. So for example, we talked about Dara at Uber. And I said, hey, Dara, would you give $750 for each of the kids of your drivers, right? So you put into the piece of legislation up to $2,000 can be contributed tax-free. And just like 401ks, we'll get a match. And that match will allow us to grow this corpus even more, but not on the backs of the federal government. We'll do this by bringing in private industry. If you look at this, if we compound it 10%, then at the age 10, that young kid has $16,000 in their account when they open it, right? By age 30, they have $155,000 in their account. It's hard to hate America. It's hard to hate capitalism. It's hard not to care about financial matters when you have real skin in the game, right? And by the age of 50, they'd have a million dollars in their account. That's the power and the joy and the magic of compounding. And we have the opportunity to seed it, to do it, to bring every American into the game. And let me just talk for a second about spending priorities in this country, because we have a $34 trillion debt in this country. We have a $2 trillion deficit. So on the one hand, you might say, we can't afford any of this, right? But just the amount, the incremental amount that's being requested, the incremental funding for Ukraine, $60 billion, would pay for this for 15 years. 4 million children born a year, over 50 million kids would have the rest of their life changed through the power of Invest America just for the incremental amount we're talking about spending there. My point is we have the financial resources in this country to include everybody in the game, but we have to make priorities about where we're going to spend those dollars. I'm devoting millions of dollars to this. I think it's the most profound thing that we can do when it comes to economic opportunity and poverty relief. It's the most profound thing we can do to narrow the wealth gap. It's the most profound thing we can do to increase financial literacy. It's the most profound thing we can do to increase high school graduation rates. But Bill Clinton may have said it best to me. 
He said, Brad, the crisis we have in this country is a crisis of hopelessness, of hopelessness. People feel left out. They don't know how they can get ahead. This is not an entitlement by the federal government that we're going to bail everybody out. No, this gives people hope from birth and allows them in the private sector to participate, to grow and to compound. And so to me, it's what government does best, right? I'm not looking for a lot more government, but government seeding and then harnessing the power of the private economy of American capitalism, I think is where public-private partnerships work best. Hopefully you'll be hearing a lot more about this. We've got authors lining up in the House and the Senate, and we've got some really great ads and whatnot that we'll be bringing online soon. But you can follow us at InvestAmerica24 on Twitter, where we'll be posting updates. We've got a great team coming together in Washington that's helping to lead this fight. And it's one that's so important. If we want to turn the tide in terms of how people feel about America, about American capitalism, then we got to bring them into the game. It's incredible. This compounding chart was on the back of your original business card at Altimeter. It's in your mind. It's the ethos of all of Art of Investing and this mix of public-private partnerships. And just this unique background you've had, I think it speaks to a lot of our students. In the classroom, we have 20 majors represented. And I think Rick and I are just big fans of somehow bringing this all together, harnessing capitalism but also understanding the power of the public sector and the nonprofit sectors. And when you can bring them together with something like this and impact so many, it's just an incredible project. Thanks for allowing me to talk a bit about it. There's a movement growing here. And I think it's something that can unite us, right? It's this idea that we all get this. So you get your social security number when you're born, you get your Invest America account. And I think at this moment in time, That's a way to really push the American advantage. But the problem is, you think about a 529, Rick, which is a college savings plan. Unfortunately, the only people who take advantage of those are people who have a lot of money. It's not poor folks. It's not people left out of the game. It's people who already are sophisticated and understand the game. And the whole idea here is how do we bring in the 70% that don't take advantage of those? This comes back to Buffett. The most important years of compounding in your life are the first 18 years. What are the years that everybody misses? The first 18, right? Why? Because there's friction in opening an account. Most people, that's scary. What does it mean to open an investment account? What does it mean to buy the S&P 500, right? Where do I get the capital to start? But what we know from behavioral psychology, savers save. So if you put savings in an account, even poor folks, will save money. Warren talks about the snowball effect. Give me a really small snowball and a really long hill. There's no longer hill than starting the day you're born. And so if we start the day they're born with a really small snowball and create that universal thing, I think we will be shocked at what happens. I think every corporation in America will make this standard part of their employee benefits. They will match 750 bucks a year for every child of their employees just like 401ks. Now it's $75 billion a year in matches. I think on top of that, parents, now that they have a vehicle, they'll put a little money in this vehicle because they don't have the trouble of knowing what to do. They just add to the vehicle. And then I think the other unlock here is around philanthropy. There's going to be a trillion dollars of wealth transfer from folks like Warren Buffett, folks like Michael Dell, Bill Gates, et cetera. As the baby boom generation passes through. And the question is, where does this money go? 
And I think a lot of people are losing faith, actually, in private philanthropy because we keep recreating the same organizations to tackle the same problems, but they all fall victim to being subscale. So there's a lot of cost and it's hard to have impact at scale. So imagine you have a program like this and you could have people who say, I'm going to leave $10 billion to all the families in America who earn under 150,000 bucks a year, right? I'm gonna match $750 for the next decade for all of these kids. I think when you unlock the power of private markets, philanthropy, business, parents, and friends, the contributions to these will be significant and make the numbers on this chart very achievable. There's so much to like about this plan, but what I really like is, first of all, it removes what seems to me is really the number one source of friction to becoming an investor, and that is getting started. I think about a whole host of people we know that are so passionate about financial literacy and what you said about this becoming a mechanism, a teaching mechanism, a tool to promote financial literacy just really resonates with me. The other thing about it, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but I love the idea of it being the S&P 500. For all that we talked earlier about the value of concentration, I think for a program like this, what strikes me is the integration with the market engine of the United States and the feedback effects of bringing more people into it. Is there anything else? And of course, low fees and liquidity and all that thing. But is there anything else about why you have settled on the S&P 500 as being that investment vehicle that's worth talking about? I would just say very simply, arguably 500 of the best companies in America, good enough for every indexer in the United States, good enough for this program. And so it already gets rebalanced. It already gets changed. It has a 50 plus year track record of success. And so it's just an easy one, right, for us to run. On top of that, the Treasury Department will invite all of these private participants from BlackRock to Fidelity, big and small to participate, right? They just have to build to a consistent API defined by the federal government and agree that they're going to manage this Invest America account fee-free for the life of the account. Now, you might say, Brad, why would they manage it fee-free? Because they're acquiring new customers. And what do they know about these customers? That They're going to save more and their kids will become customers. And so I even have talked with many of these companies. They said, we will match. At the time they open the account, we'll match because we have a new customer, right, in the mix and they'll manage it for free. So I think there's a lot to like about that. Of course, Rick, some of the feedback that I've gotten, some people pushed on this. I was presenting this at an event with Bill and Hillary and a progressive group of Democrats called Inclusive Capitalism. And some people said, why should the kids of rich parents get it? And Clinton helped me answer the question. He said, because finally we have something that can be universal, right? Let's not start dividing everybody again. Let's give everybody skin in the game. Everybody pays into the system. Everybody should get skin in the game for their kids. Some people said, why should we allow them to invest in oil and gas companies? Nope, same thing. S&P 500 is good enough to be the biggest index fund in America. 500 of the best companies. We're not going to start picking and choosing. But probably the biggest pushback I hear, which is, I think, very true, which is the United States has a tremendous amount of debt. We have to get spending under control. Those are just glaring facts. But that's why I really want to focus on spending priorities. This is not that we don't have enough money to do this. It's that we're spending on the wrong things. I think there are more than enough offsets that people want to look for offsets. But the fact of the matter is we spend more on a single weapon system 
for our defense contract, a single plane that we're talking about contributing here to every child born in America, right? Foreign aid to individual countries, the top 10 countries, all more than this every single year. We can afford foreign aid of $5 billion a year to a country outside the United States. How can we not be able to afford to put every single child born in America in business? So it just comes down to priorities. But I think, listen, I have started four companies. I know a thing or two about product market fit. And I will tell you, being around politics and entrepreneurialism for 40 years, I've never seen an idea with better product market fit than this idea. On the right and the left, people are enthusiastic. Yes, they want to prevent abuse. Yes, they want to prevent regulatory capture. All of that can be achieved, right, through proper implementation of the program. But I think fundamentally, people know in their heart of hearts that this is a great way to begin to bring people back together around the civic value of American capitalism, around financial literacy, inclusion. And yes, this will disproportionately benefit kids who are left out of the system. Institutional poverty comes from the fact that your parents, your grandparents, et cetera, they don't know any of the mechanisms or levers of capitalism. So yes, it is scarier. It is less likely they're going to open an investment account. So let's help you, but let's help everybody get into the game because whether you're a poor white kid from Mississippi or Louisiana or Indiana down the road like I was, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people in the system today that for whatever reason will never participate in compounding. And I think this is the federal government has a role to play, seed it and then get out of the way, seed it and then get out of the way. And I think that's what government does best. So we'll no doubt have our challenges. Washington is a long putt, but I've been spending a lot of time there. And I will just say the product market fit from the right to the left has been pretty extraordinary. This is going to be exciting to not only watch, but hopefully participate in. And obviously it goes without saying, you've got the Art of Investing family firmly in your corner. We will, in the coming months, talk more about just the ways in which people can get involved. I imagine just some of the old-fashioned writing a letter to your representative will be part of it. Brad, one of the things that just excites me too about the S&P 500, and when you think about a project like this where you're really talking about what's possible over the course of 30, 40, 50 years, is that inevitably, being market cap weighted, the S&P 500 ultimately captures the best of true secular innovation. And this is actually something we wanted to talk to you about because time and time again, you and Altimeter have been behind these mega trends, whether it was the internet and travel and mobility. And so maybe it'd be helpful to fun to just talk a little bit about the future that you see and the areas of company building and markets that you're most excited about. I've heard you talk about qualitative insights that have driven these really big secular investing themes for you. But talk to us a bit about what it is about your process that's enabled you to be so successful at spotting, identifying, and then riding these massive megatrend waves? Well, technology is prone to disruption. And I remember, again, one of those early professors at Harvard Business School, he said, I've had geniuses come through my classroom that went to work for airlines and ended up looking like morons. I've had below average intelligence folks come here, go to work for pharmaceutical companies and end up looking like geniuses. So choose your boat wisely. One's a great business, the other's not right? And I think one of the overarching things that occurs at Altimeter, as anthropologists, as students of technology, as researchers, is trying to understand the veins, what we call super cycle, that have huge secular tailwinds, 
that are likely to capture a disproportionate amount of the value that's created caused by this big secular shift. And then go find the best companies that are taking advantage of that super cycle. Satya talks about this most recently on the Microsoft earnings call. He cites the same four platform shifts. And he says all the value, all the market leadership is captured in the first three to four years after those platform shifts. So let's think about the ones that I've invested in. Internet. In 1999, if you didn't think long and hard, then the internet investing was really chaotic. And 90% of the companies went to zero. How did you organize where you wanted to invest? For us, it was this idea I talked about earlier. We knew the internet would be one of the largest, most transformative things of our lives, but really within the internet, controlling the top of the funnel, organizing the world's information, whether it was vertical like travel and real estate, or whether it was horizontal like Google, whether it was a product-oriented company like Amazon, each of those companies, Booking.com, what did they do? They organized all the world's hotels. Booking.com was a search engine that built its business within the belly of another search engine called Google. So I know you're going to have my lot on in a couple of weeks. I'll let him do the booking case. I will just say to the classroom, he's one of the best CFOs of all time. And I was able to achieve 100x in an investment in Priceline as a public company, a venture capital return hiding in plain sight in the public markets. For me, the first super cycle was the internet really around search. The second one was when we saw the shift around this device. And again, you have to be in the game. Mobile had a lot of false starts. Palm Pilot, Danger, Sidekick, Blackberry, right? But you could start to get skeptical or you can be too early. But then we saw this device and by 2010, 2011, we started to see business models emerge that couldn't have existed before you had a supercomputer in your pocket. Airbnb, Uber, Instagram, social networks that were being built on the back of this thing in your pocket. And so we were early investors in a lot of those companies taking advantage of that platform shift. And we got a little more skeptical about the search companies that were living in the underbelly of Google because search was no longer the dominant organizing metaphor of technology. About the same time, 2011, 2012, we became convinced that everybody rebuilding the same data center and rebuilding the same security stack and the same database stack made no sense. They were all replicating each other's work and it wasn't very good. Wouldn't it make more sense to have one of the world's largest organizations like Amazon or Microsoft or Google build a cloud infrastructure where they could have thousands of people working on security, not one person, that could be more performant, faster, et cetera. And at that time, Rick and Paul, you may remember, it was out of favor to believe that the cloud would be cheaper, faster, more secure. But that's the conclusion that we came to that led us into early investments in companies like Snowflake and Mongo, Okta and Twilio. So again, we studied the super cycle because there's a trillion dollars spent in just databases alone. So if those databases were going to be re-architected for the cloud, and we were doubling the amount of digital data in the world every two years, don't you think that the database in the cloud would be pretty big? And so when the founding team out of Oracle left to rebuild this thing, and I got to know them, but this small little company that was just getting started called Snowflake, it became clear to me that was an asymmetric bet. We believed the super cycle would become faster, cheaper, more secure, 
And we believe this was the team to rebuild the database from the ground up that really separated storage and compute and could take advantage of the full elasticity of the cloud. And today it's a $50, $60 billion company. And in many ways, I think still getting started. Okay, so now the latest super cycle, much like mobile, we've been talking about AI for 15 years. I mentioned my first AI investment was backing Oren Enzioni out of the University of Washington. He's a professor of AI to start Faircast in 2005. And we sold that company to Microsoft in 2008. And I recently had dinner with Satya and I said, do you remember what you said when you bought that company from us? Because he was the head of Bing at the time. And he said, yes. What I said was, we're not going to beat Google with 10 blue links. We got to get to answers. Think about that for a second. 2008, he said, we got to get to answers. What did ChatGPT just give us? Answers. This was 15 years in the making to bring together the primitives, the supercompute, the storage, the silicon, the data, free in the cloud, transformer models, all the conditions required to get us to this Cambrian moment around AI. And so a lot of people say to me today, is AI the latest super cycle? And I will stipulate that I think AI is a super cycle. It will be bigger than the internet itself. And here's the reason why. Number one, a condition required for a super cycle is that it makes businesses better, reduces their costs, increases their revenue, and it makes consumers' lives better. It makes it easier for them to do the things that they want to do in their life. And I would say that AI, think of this as augmented intelligence, is already doing this. For business, it's dramatically lowering the cost of running your call center. Code generation, we know, Code Whisperer, Copilot, is already increasing the productivity of engineers by 30 to 50%. These are step functions never before achieved in technology. Okay, so dramatic impacts on the cost structure of business. You look at Meta's recent report or we're investors in ByteDance, TikTok, their recent quarter, they're accelerating their growth rates from massive bases because they're now using the black box of AI to run content matching, ad matching versus doing this in some other ways. And from a consumer perspective, I was recently in an audience, I'd ask your class the same thing. How many of you are using ChatGPT or Claude in your life in some capacity, right? I would imagine a lot of you. With your art investing assignments, (laughs) I assume. (laughs) I hope they are actually, Rick. I hope you're using it as a tool to be better, not to do your work for you, but to be better. Because we're going to think of ChatGPT and Claude in the same way that we think of the internet, right? proficiency at prompt engineering, proficiency at using this tool will make you super intelligent and allow you to compete. And so I think it is one of the super cycles. I'll give you this. I heard Bill Gates, I was at dinner in 2000, I think 15, and he told this and it really unlocked it for me. When talking about artificial intelligence, somebody asked him the question, haven't all the innovative things been done? And you guys may be sitting in that classroom and saying to yourself, oh man, I've missed it all. Technology is already taken off. In 2001, I thought I had missed the internet, right? I was like, oh, great. What's there to invest in? Just getting started. And so is AI. But somebody said to Gates, 2015, we have the internet, we have mobile devices in our pockets, we have social networks, we have cloud. What else can we possibly do? And Bill immediately said, we haven't even started. What do you mean? And he said, listen, whether we're talking about how we educate our kids or how we do research for a new drug or how we maintenance an airplane engine, not much has changed. Has our classroom changed that much? How we educate an elementary kid? Has medicine, how we discover drugs changed that much? He said, the reason it doesn't change is this. Each human is a single storage unit and single processor. You're born with no data. 
Over the course of your life, you collect a lot of data and your processor speed continues to run. And that gives you your maximum function, your maximum power to solve problems, right? But unfortunately, as you age, you get slower, your processor speed fails, and then you eventually die and you take all the data with you. And that's why if you look at the first 99.9% of human history, the first 110 billion people who occupied this planet, they died before they ever saw a single invention. Their life cycle was shorter than the invention cycle. Almost all the inventions in human history have occurred within the last couple hundred years. All the meaningful inventions, the cycle time on inventions is going like this. Why? Because we're augmenting our intelligence. So he said, when AI comes, imagine this. We now have all this digital data that we create and we store it permanently. Not one brain, an infinite brain that never forgets in perpetuity. It never dies. And then all that information can be processed, not by a single processor, but by a processor with trillions of parameters. These giant supercomputers that can look for patterns in that data, that can help you figure out better ways to educate a dyslexic kid, precision education, better ways to find an mRNA vaccine and solve a blood cancer, precision medicine. And it's happening, and it's happening at warp speed, Right now, in places like Silicon Valley, another place the U.S. has leadership, just when they say the best years of the United States are behind us, don't believe them. I'm an American optimist. I will tell you, I've been in Silicon Valley for 20 years, and the dynamism of Silicon Valley is as great as it's ever been. It's deeply embedded in the DNA of this country. It's deeply embedded in the DNA of Silicon Valley. We shouldn't take it for granted. So I think this next super cycle, I like to call it augmented intelligence, not artificial intelligence. This is not about running humanity on autopilot. This is about making us all smarter, every business smarter, and every student smarter to learn faster. And so whether it's applications, whether it's the tooling layer, whether it's the data layer, whether it's the silicon layer, Altimeter is investing across that entire stack. And I'll bring this full circle. Why do venture in public? together. We're having one of our best years in the history of the firm in our public market this year, despite the fact that the S&P X7 companies is down for the year, despite the fact that the Russell 2000 is down for the year. We're making money on both our short book and our long book. Why? Because all the work that we had done with our venture capital companies, looking at all the H100s they were buying, the supply shortage we had in supercompute, the need to get all this data unleashed in the cloud, that allowed us to position the public portfolio around companies like NVIDIA and Microsoft, the companies around the modern data stack like Amazon and Snowflake, and to realize that there are a bunch of companies that were going to be on the losing end of that arrangement as well. And so I think we're just getting started 2022 was really breakthrough year. 2023 was the year of testing. Every company in America testing AI, trying to figure out what's the best way to improve our company through the use of this. 2024 will be the beginning of moving things into production. And then 2025 and beyond, away we go. And so it's that focus on super cycles, saying this is where there's going to be massive secular tailwinds. There's going to be disproportionate value created and captured. Who are the best companies at every layer of this? So I'm not sitting backwards waiting on somebody to walk in off the street with a great idea for a new restaurant. That's not what I do. I'm not sitting back in the public market saying, oh, just any old company in the S&P 500. No, we're prosecuting a strategy based upon a belief, 
right? That the biggest forces in technology today are accelerating on things like data and data infrastructure, all the things that set that data free that enable enterprises to take full advantage of AI and augmented intelligence. Like everybody in this classroom, one of your huge advantages is you don't have your brain cluttered with all the things that didn't work over the last 30 years, right? Most investors, one of their biggest challenges is pattern recognition can be good and bad, right? The bad part of pattern recognition is it never happened this way, so that can't happen this way. But industry structures change, super cycles change. You often see it before everybody else. You probably were aware of chat GPT before most investors on Wall Street. That gives you an advantage. Recognize it, look, be curious, study it. And that unleashes incredible investment opportunities. I keep thinking about Invest America. And if you're directionally right with AI and whatever the next mega trend is, that how powerful it will be if every American is invested in the future of the S&P 500 and capturing alongside all of this innovation that you're right, it could be such a unifying force. Let me just say one other thing here, because I think it's important. This is an important point. The benefits of human progress are not equally distributed at all times. It's really important to understand that there are losers in the game of human progress, because when we move from horses to cars, if you were in the business of repairing horseshoes, you were put out of business, right? If you were in the business of making carriages that were horse-drawn, you were put out of business. You had to find your way back into the next thing, okay? AI is going to be the largest displacement of human labor in the history of capitalism. What it's going to mean isn't that we're going to wake up tomorrow and everybody's going to lay off half of their companies, but it's going to mean the rate of hiring will be much slower at companies than it was for the past 20 years. Just give you one example, okay? If you have a 50% improvement in your productivity of your engineers, and you're growing the top line of your company at, let's say, 20%, you don't need to hire new engineers, right? So when Meta gives guidance and say they've kegered their headcount by 40% over the last five years, and now they say we're not going to grow headcount over the next two years, it's believable. This is the cause of it. If you work in a call center, call centers are going to be dramatically changed. We're investors in a company called ByteDance. I think they have 40,000 content moderators for a single product. They'll all be displaced. So another reason, Rick, we have to do Invest America is because there's going to be a lot of disruption that will cause a lot of anger. A lot of people will feel left out of the system. And if they're going to experience the downside of AI, they need to experience some of the upside. So bring everybody into the system. We're creating the conditions for American enterprises to succeed. Let's everybody go with it. And I'm not saying we just make everybody millionaires. Not at all. What I'm saying is seed them with a little seed, right? Get them into the game and then let the private markets do what the private markets do. But Warren Buffett is bet on the upside of America for 50 years. It served him incredibly well. I'm betting on the upside of America for the next 50 years. And I want everybody else to be on the journey with us because I think we're better positioned now than we have been any time over the last 20 years. Not without our problems, got to deal with our national debt, et cetera. But I like what I see. It's an awesome vision. I like what you're seeing too. Okay, final question. But before, just one quick Bob Mylod story from our time with him and Henry Ellenbogen in class about this time a year ago. So circa 2000, 2001, a NASDAQ bubble is bursting 
as you described, most tech companies are going broke. Bob Mylod, the CFO of then Priceline, gets served a letter from the NASDAQ, letting him know the Priceline is at risk of delisting. If he doesn't get the stock up, do you want to know what Bob did to get the stock up? What did he do? A reverse stock split. Now, if that is not essentialism at its best, yeah. how do you get the stock price up? You do a one for 10 stock split and all of a sudden the stock price is higher. That is the thing that the 100X that you captured was at risk of not occurring were it not for Bob to engineer a reverse stock split. That's pretty crazy. But also perhaps more interestingly, when he talked about how Priceline found its way out of the difficulties that were plaguing most all tech companies at that time, it was almost exactly what you described in your letter to Mark Zuckerberg in the Silicon Valley. It was getting fit, starting to become more capital efficient, slowing down in order to someday in the future still survive and then speed back up again. And I just think about here we are circa 20 or so years later and the same lessons repeat themselves. I want to close with our final question. And that is, what is the kindest thing that anybody's ever done for you? No, I'm just kidding, Patrick. <laughs> Pretty good. I was like, oh, are, are we really going there? I was wondering if you could see my eyes rolling or not. <laughs> uh, how about this one? And we've touched on a number of inspiring Harvard Business School professors. We haven't talked directly about Clay Christensen. Clay is probably most famous for his book, The Innovator's Dilemma. He also wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's something that ultimately, through the course of each semester, we have all of our students work through and reflect on. But I'm curious, Brad, just how you would ultimately like your life to be measured as you view it today. I was lucky enough to know Clayton. And I love the fact that he came back to this question and really challenged us all to think about it. Because I think we're all on these journeys, we get so focused. And as I said earlier, you can start thinking transactionally, right, about relationships. And if somebody's not quite as valuable to you at a moment in time, because they're no longer the CEO of a company, you lose the time or the energy for the relationship. And just really understanding how precious those things are. And so one thing, because I've done a lot of thinking about what Clayton asks, and I have a lot of friends and their favorite musical was Rent. I remember the song from Rent, 525,600 minutes. How do you measure a year in a life? And their answer was not daylight, sunsets, midnights, or cups of coffee, but measured in love. And you're speaking to an art of investing class, right? It is hard to measure that. But I think about what my family gave to me. What I want to be remembered for is being a great dad, a great friend, a great colleague, somebody who showed up. Insofar as my career is concerned, if they just say he gave maximum effort for positive impact in everything he did, he left it all on the field. He didn't waste it. He knew he had one precious life. I turned 50 recently and I talked at my birthday gathering. I said, we all have 10,000 days at best left, 10,000. And if you actually make a chart with 10,000 dots on it, it's not a lot. And how are you going to use them? Be purposeful. Be really purposeful about this journey you're on. Don't take it all too seriously. Have a hell of a lot of fun. Get in a little mischief and trouble, but ultimately live a life of purpose. Don't meander. And for me, I feel really blessed to have the economic freedom that my father didn't at this moment in my life. And I'm very focused on not wasting it. And so I get up early every morning. I stop late at night, not because I want to make more money. I live pretty humbly. And that's not what the journey is about for me. It's a nice scoreboard to know whether or not I'm good at my craft. Don't get me wrong. I want to win championships. But 
I also cook breakfast for my kids in the morning and I take them to school and I care deeply about my friends and my family and I'm working my ass off not to waste it. And I think that purpose really comes together being privileged to do what I love to do every day. And I always wondered like, why does Buffett still says he whistles when he skips into the office? I'm like, how can this guy still be going into the office? Where I grew up, if you made money, you retired. Remember my parents' generation, all they could talk about is, when are we going to retire? How long do we have to work before we retire? Because they didn't really love what they did. Most people were not privileged to do what they love. I can't imagine retiring because I love what I do. And I think it's an absolute privilege to try to dent the universe a little bit, leave the world a little bit better. And that's how to answer the question. And you guys, I'm such a huge fan of Patrick. In many ways, Patrick kicked this all off and planting the seed with me about capturing the world's knowledge and then you guys to do it in the classroom and to say, okay, how can we propagate that? How can we have broader impact? I'm an avid listener. I love listening. I love listening to Ho and to Todd, to the guys that acquired. I listen to all Patrick's stuff because I'm also deeply passionate about learning. And one of the things that makes me smile now is when I listen to Ho and Todd, et cetera, is just how much we have in common. We came from totally different places, had totally different influences, but somehow find our way to some of these same permanent truths. And one of them is the joy of compounding relationships and building these platforms that allow us to work with some of the most interesting people on the planet. And so thanks for having me. Hopefully we keep the tradition alive. Can I add just one other thing? Because Brad didn't say it in his answer about how he'll be measured. And I think it's a way that he will be measured. And I think it's a really powerful, very simple lesson, which is to include other talented people in an abundant way. I think that what Brad has done for me on several occasions, and my sense is he's doing it all the time, is when he's on to something of interest, if you ask around Silicon Valley, for example, you turn over a stone and there's Brad. And the reason is that he is bringing the interesting ideas and opportunities to other people that he likes, of course, and are talented, of course. And there's a selfish component because all these amazing people bring something to the table too. But I think a lot of people in investing, even great investors, will sometimes be hoarders of great ideas and opportunities. And my sense is that Brad has done the opposite. And look where it's gotten him. For me, that is a lesson that is really powerful and portable and that anyone can do and can have tremendous impact. And I think that's the way that Brad will be measured for sure. This has been such a fun class, just jam-packed with learnings. Brad, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And more importantly, just for the ways in which you're serving so many others, I think in particular, just with this Invest America idea and how profoundly it could shape our country and our country's future. So thanks for that. We're excited to see where it goes and to help in any way we can, but just so grateful to have you as part of the Art of Investing family. Until next year. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thanks so much for showing up to class today. For more Art of Investing episodes and to explore all of the resources we mentioned today and more, check out staygrovey.com. That's staygrovey.com. That's it for now, and we'll see you next time.